Let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 24 this morning. Exodus chapter 24. God loves to meet with His people, and I'm thankful that He has provided a way by which our church can meet with Him this morning. But if we're going to meet with God, then His holiness needs to be protected, and we must meet with Him on His terms. Thankfully, God has not left us to guess about what those terms are. He has given us instructions as to what He expects when we worship Him. And the fundamental means by which we can come to God is through His Son. That is, through this Mediator. And the idea of God to speaking to His people through a Mediator is not a new phenomenon. It had its beginnings in the Old Testament. And here in chapter 24 of Exodus, we have an example of Moses who would serve as a mediator for the people between God and the people. So let me read our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord uh, and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars on the twelve, for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Here in chapter 24, we see that God meets with His people through an appointed mediator. God meets with His people through an appointed mediator. God loves to meet with His people, and so God has provided a way for his people to come to Him. 
And what I want you to notice, first of all, is verse 1, that God initiates our meeting with Him. God is the one who initiates our meeting with Him. Verse 1, He says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, and you shall worship at a distance. God is the initiator of our meeting with Him. If we're going to meet with God, it's not because we're seeking Him or that we are demanding a meeting with Him. He must be like King Xerxes. He must raise his scepter to allow people to come to Him. Do you remember what would happen to a person who came to King Xerxes without having the scepter raised? He would die. And in in a similar way, God doesn't allow people just to come to Him. uh, Just they can't find him. In fact, the, the, the scriptures say, Paul tells us that no one seeks after God. That, that no one desires to, to find God. God is the one who's seeking us. And so, if we look at the, the story of Exodus, if we just pull back here and, and take a broader view of the whole story of Exodus, we see that God is the one who initiated their meeting with him that's really starting to culminate here in chapter 24. And He initiated it by bringing them out of bondage from Egypt. And I think the same is true for us, that our worship of God was initiated by God. It may have felt for you like you were searching for God, like you needed something. But we know from the Scripture that before I loved Him, He loved me. And that before I found Him, He found me. And that before I sought for Him, He sought me. You see, God is the initiator of our relationship with Him. And here's how the Apostle John states it in 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. We can't love God or others apart from God first loving us. So God is the initiator of our meeting with Him. The second thing that we need to see is in verse 2. And that is that God demands that we meet with Him on His terms. God demands that we meet with Him on His terms. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with Him. Here, God establishes three levels of nearness to Him. That is, that that it was going to be similar to what the tabernacle would be later. That one person, the priest, could come into the Holy, Holy of Holies where God's presence resided, and that person could go in. And that would be once a year. And he'd have to come with a sacrifice. But then outside of that, you could have more people. There was a, another group that was outside of that in the inner, the, the inner uh, part of the tabernacle. And then you had the outer court of the tabernacle where basically anyone who was consecrated could come. And so here, God's establishing these three sorts of levels that, of, of nearness. He's saying the people, they need to stay at the base of the mountain. They cannot come up. But you, Moses, you come up with the 70 elders and... Aaron and Joshua and Nadab and Abihu. And you you all come up. You come up a little bit further, but as we're going to see later in the passage, who is it that's only allowed to go up into the glory of God to the summit of the mountain? It's only Moses, right? So it's only Moses who can come into the, the actual presence of God. And so God, I think, is setting up these levels of nearness. And this is the idea here that, that I think we need to draw from this passage, and that is that God meets with His people through a mediator. Moses is that man. Now, later on, it's going to be Aaron because Aaron's going to be established as the priest. But for now, it is Moses who is the mediator. Number three, in verses three through eight, we see that God expects our total consecration. That is, that God expects us to be totally set apart for Him. Verses three through eight. 
Moses communicates God's expectations in verse 3 that, that here are all the words that God has spoken to me. And notice how they respond. Uh, well, first notice in verse 4 that, that he writes all these things down. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And this was critical because you have people who are going to make this commitment who are effectively making this commitment for themselves and for future generations, right? It, if you think about it in terms of Israel's history or really their future from this point on, Moses is making a commitment for the people that are currently living, but he's also saying for future generations, we also will do this. They're entering into a relationship with God that's going to affect future generations. And if future generations are going to have to agree to this covenant, then the best way to do that is to write it down. And that's what Moses does. He writes it down. Moses symbolizes their consecration in the second part of verse 4. There he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. So he sets up these twelve pillars. And then in verse 5, he offers sacrifices. Notice the different kinds of sacrifices. They offered burnt offerings and young bulls as peace offerings. So the burnt offerings are for what? For the forgiveness of sins. You'd come to the temple or the tabernacle and you would bring a burnt offering. The, the priest would offer a burnt offering for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so there needs to be the shedding of blood. For the Old Testament saint, it was to bring an animal that God required and, not, and a spotless animal. You see, God wanted to meet with His people, but He could not ignore their sin. And then the second type of offering is a fellowship offering. You see this in the second part of verse 5. Young bulls as a peace offering or a fellowship offering. And we're going to see later on that they sit down in verse 11 at the end of the verse and they saw God and they ate and drank together with God. So this is the part of the peace offering. After you would offer the sacrifice, then you would, the priests would eat it. Uh, in the presence of God. In verse 7, the people reaffirmed their commitment to God's law. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Notice verse 8. Um, uh, that's not the verse I'm looking for. But they, they reaffirmed the covenant and then I think later on in the passage they do it as well. They had done this before as well, they're, they're basically saying, listen, we agree to what you have said to us, God. What, what you require of us, we are agreeing to it. And so notice what, what Moses does in the second part of verse 6. Or let's just read the whole verse. Moses took half of the blood. This is the blood from likely the burnt offering, which is the atonement for sins. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. So he takes half of the blood from these burnt offerings, and he puts it on the altar. What was the purpose of this? Okay, the purpose of sprinkling on the altar was to show that, that blood was being atoned for the sin that was being paid for. But, but notice what happens in verse 8 with the other half of the blood that he had put in basins. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Now, why would he do that? Why would Moses take animal's blood and sprinkle it on the people? I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of gross. Right, if, what, what, would, what would you think of me if I had a basin of goat's blood and I decided that this morning I was just going to sprinkle you all with goat's blood on the way out? We wouldn't like that. But for Israel, it would be a perpetual reminder for them 
as they saw those stains on their clothes, that they had entered into a covenant with God. Notice what happens after He sprinkles them in verse 8. He says to them, Behold the blood of the covenant. So in other words, this blood means something. It means that someone had to die in order for you, that is, something had to die in order for you to enter into a relationship with God. And you have made a covenant with God. And it's in accordance with all these words. So Moses is making clear that that what's happening here is not some minor thing. This is serious. This is a serious relationship that you are entering into. Number four, God meets with us. So God initiates our meeting with Him. God demands that we meet Him on His term. God expects total consecration. And then number four, God meets with us. Verses 9-11. through Here, Nadab and Abihu, along with Aaron and Moses, and we find out later Joshua is with them. And the 70 elders, they all ascend. uh, They begin to ascend the mountain. Now, it's not exactly clear... um, what Moses and the 70 elders saw. But notice verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. Okay, We know later from chapter 33, verse 20, that they didn't see God. We, we know from that passage that, that here, this, this group of people didn't see God in all of His glory. Because Moses says in chapter 33, verse 20 of Exodus, that no one can see God and what? And live, Right? So, so that's when, you remember, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and He puts, he, he covers Moses' face as God passes by. And after God passes by, He allows Moses to see just kind of the back portion of God's glory. And so, no one can see God in all of His glory. And so that's clearly not what they saw here in verse 10. It says they saw God, the, these 74 elders along with um, Moses, or these 74 men. Well, it could be that they saw a theophany, what theologians call theophany. It's, it's just a word that means an appearance of God, a revelation, a manifestation of God. Remember, God is spirit, so no one can actually see God in that sense. No one see, can see God unless He manifests Himself in some way. And can you think of another time in the Old Testament when God appeared in a visible form? Can you think of a time when God the Father appeared in a physical form? It seems to me that that God the Father is the one who is in the burning bush in chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And I believe that He's also there as the pillar of cloud and fire. And so God is manifesting Himself to His people. Here He's manifesting Himself. Again, whatever the case, notice what they, they came away with. They didn't have any description of God's form or what exactly He looked like. Instead, notice what they describe in verse 10. And under His feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Well, they can't describe what God looks like, but they can describe very clearly the pavement of sapphire that was underneath His feet. And the point is that whatever they saw, it was that God was a great God. That He was a powerful God. And His greatness is further seen in verse 11 yet He did not stretch out His hand against the nobles and the sons of Israel. That is, He did not stretch out His hand to strike them and kill them. That is, that God is a powerful God and demands that only those who are holy will come into His presence. And so God had every right to destroy those who entered His presence apart from uh, consecration or holiness. And yet God did not do that. 
the second part of verse 11, we see that they eat with God. Again, I think this is probably just a culmination of this covenant that they're making with God. If you think about the ancient Near Eastern covenants, the way that they would happen is when you would have a suzerain and a vassal, the greater king and the lesser king, when they would come into an agreement, they would uh, often uh, take some animals, cut them in half, and lay them on the ground. And then each party would walk through the middle of those cut animals to signify that I am going to agree to the terms of this covenant, and if I don't, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. And you think of a time that this happened in, in the Old Testament previously. If you think back to Abraham, Abraham uh, was, I think it's in Genesis chapter 15, where God puts Abraham to sleep and God shows him this vision of this covenant that he's going to enter into with Abraham. And he, he, God effectively, God's presence walks through the midst of these cut animals saying, if I don't follow through on this covenant, Abraham, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. God's saying, in other words, I am going to do it. Okay, I'm not going to die. I'm going to follow through on this covenant. And Abraham actually didn't walk through the middle of those cut animals. He was sleeping. And so what that tells us is that that actually was a one-sided covenant. That God was, that's what, what, what we can call a unilateral or unconditional covenant. That God was saying, I'm going to do this no matter what. And what was that covenant? That God would make Abraham, Abraham's family into a great nation. That He would have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky or sand on the seashore, right? And that, that all who bless His people will be blessed. And all who curse His people will be blessed. And God is fulfilling that covenant, and He will finally fulfill that in the in the end times in the the millennial kingdom. But this covenant is different from that one. Okay, it's it's different in that this was likely both parties walked through the middle of these cut animals. Now it doesn't say what exactly happened, but that's normally what happened when a covenant would take place. That each party would walk through the middle of those cut animals, and then they would eat together with this fellowship offering this bull that was offered as uh, kind of a peace offering. And so, God meets with His people. God, uh, God desires to meet with them. He's the one who initiates the meeting with them. And He provides the terms of the meeting with Him. And He demands consecration. And then He meets with them. And then notice number five, God meets with us through His appointed mediator. Verses 12 to 18. God meets with us through His appointed mediator. In verse 12, at this point, the 73 elders probably go to the foot of the mountain and Moses and Joshua continue toward God. Uh, God tells Moses to come up. Notice verse 13. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. The reason I think the, the other elders go down is because of verse 14. But to the elders, Moses said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. So what he's saying is, if you're going to handle... You remember, do you remember when uh, Moses was overwhelmed with all the legal cases that he was handling all day? Handling all day? People were coming to him and, and it was going from morning to night and they wouldn't get their cases settled. And so his father-in-law said, You know, you need to... You need to delegate. You need to get train some godly men who can who can uh, be able to handle some of these lesser cases, and you need to just handle the bigger, the the greater cases. 
And so that's what he did. Well, now that Moses is up the mountain and he's actually going to be up there for at least 47 days, that, that there are going to be some legal cases that need to be handled. There are going to be some disputes that take place within the people of Israel. And Moses says, you are the men whom God has appointed to handle those. So you go down back to the base of the mountain and you handle all the legal disputes as I'm away. And so that's what they did. Moses and Joshua ascend the mountain and at some point Joshua has to stop because Moses goes up alone. Um, verse 15, Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. So at some point... Joshua, his, his uh, assistant, we could say, is going along with Moses. And at some point, Joshua stops because God won't allow him to go any further. And then Moses ascends into this cloud, which is a, is a representation of God's presence. It's a, it's a manifestation of God's presence. And, and Moses ascends into the mountain, into the cloud, but then it says for six more days, he's, he's still going. And it, apparently, Moses is probably climbing up to the summit of the mountain. And on the seventh day, he reaches the top of the mountain where God's special presence resides, and that's when God speaks to him. This would have been a spectacular experience, both for Moses and for Israel, that Moses is able to walk into the very glory cloud of God and is enveloped by His presence. And... So God speaks to him directly. And this also would have been spectacular to see for the people. Notice verse 17. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, where are they now? They're at the base of the mountain. Okay, They're still at the base of the mountain. They're camped there, but they're looking up to see what's going on. And notice what they see. They see the appearance of the glory of the Lord to be like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. To them, it looked like a volcano was going off. Not that it was a volcano. It was the presence of God. It was God's glory that was there. It was this pillar of cloud that likely turned into some kind of fire, or at least to them it appeared that way. Moses enters the cloud in verse 18. We see that he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. And we know from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, that he was without food, or, uh, he was without food for those 40 days, that he fasted for that time. So God desires to meet with His people and God has, has initiated a relationship with His people through an appointed mediator. So let me give you three principles from, uh, three principles from this passage that we can draw and, and uh, apply to our lives. Number one, God has made a way for you to meet with Him. God has made a, a way for you to meet with Him. And I can tell you that it is even better than what the Old Testament Israelite had as a means to meet with Him. We no longer have to wait at the bottom of the mountain. You realize that God has provided a way for you to have direct access to Him, just like Moses. Now You might think of yourself like, well, now I have to go through a Moses character. I need, I need a Moses character in my life so I can meet with God. And so you might identify more with the people at the base of the mountain, but what the Scriptures tell us is that when you come to Christ, that you are, you are Moses. You are the mediator. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one 
that is Jesus, who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have a high priest who, who's, who's, who doesn't understand all of our troubles. He's, he's been tempted in every way, just like we are, Jesus has. And yet He's without sin. And so here's the application of that in Hebrews 4, verse 16. We need to draw near to the throne of grace. We need to ascend the mountain to the presence of God. I don't know where each of you stands in your relationship with God, but perhaps you have come here today and you don't have a personal relationship with God. You don't know how you can meet with Him. You realize that God has initiated a relationship with you by sending His Son to die for your sins. And that all who will believe in His finished sacrifice will be saved. You can avoid the eternal wrath of God and be accepted as His child if you will call on the name of the Lord today. If you'll trust that Christ's substitutionary atonement is fully satisfactory in paying for your sin. It's like that blood that was sprinkled on the altar that said to God, God, these people are holy. They are set apart. Their sins have been washed. That's what Christ's blood did for us. It's sprinkled on the, the mercy seat. And God looks at us and says, you're forgiven. And so if you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead and that His sacrifice was enough, and that He is now in heaven living for you, then you will be saved. See, God has provided a way for us to meet with Him. And so our job now is to go to the throne of grace. Go to Christ, who is God. We can go directly to Him. We don't need a a human, a fallen human mediator. We have Christ. So now we go to God through God, the Son. We go directly to God. God has made a way for you to meet with Him. Secondly, second point of application is our greatest protection is found in the will of God. Our, the greatest place that you can be is within the will of God. God had shown Himself powerfully by delivering Israel from the bondage of Egypt, but He will continually drive home the point that without Him, they are nothing and can do nothing and will amount to nothing. Without God, they are nothing. Positively stated, there was no better place for them than to be in the covenant of God. I mean, we might look at Israel and say, well, let's think of all the dangers that could face Israel. What, what kind of dangers might they face? Well, lots of enemies and lots of corruption from within. Famine, right? All sorts of trouble could face them. But that's not the greatest danger for Israel. The greatest danger for Israel was to be out of fellowship with God. Don't you see, we cannot go through life in a meaningful way without God on our side. Our life will be a big waste of time if we live it apart from God. Is that true? Our life is a waste apart from God. And that means that even if all of our dreams come true and God is far removed from those dreams, then you will amount to to nothing. And in the next life, it will mean nothing. All those dreams will amount to nothing. In the next life, it will mean nothing except greater punishment because you rejected God. But when we have God in view, 
His desires for our lives. When we do those things, we live for a greater purpose. And we receive abundant and eternal joy that begins now and that cannot be taken away from us, even if the greatest dangers in the world threaten us. The the same dangers that Israel might have been concerned about. See, the biggest problem, the biggest danger for Israel was not those things external to them, all these things around them that could crush them and take away their hopes and dreams. The greatest danger was them being out of fellowship with God. And the same thing is true for us. We will amount to nothing if we live a life apart from God. Number three, God takes covenants very seriously. God takes covenants very seriously. In the ancient Near East, when covenants were put together between a greater king and a lesser king, the greater king would agree to provide protection, to give provisions, and then the lesser king would agree to serve the greater king and to follow his orders, right? He didn't have much to offer. He didn't, couldn't offer a lot of money, but he would, he would serve the king, give tribute to the king, which was actually in the form of money in many cases. But he would follow his orders and say, listen, if you'll provide for us and protect us, we'll do this. What, what, would, what do you think would happen if the lesser king decided, you know what, I'm just going to move away from this agreement I've made with the, with the greater king. I'm just going to move away from that oath that I made. What's going to happen to all of his provision and protection that he was that he was promised, right? Because he broke his part of the covenant. The lesser king broke his part of the covenant. Do you think the greater king's still going to provide protection and provision? No, he has no right to do that. Because this person forfeited the benefits of the covenant by rejecting the covenant, by breaking the covenant. So here's the point with us. To turn away from God after we have agreed to become His bondslave is not something that God just turns aside and says, I'll just, put a blind, I'll just turn a blind eye to that. That is a capital offense against the King of all kings. It is a capital offense against the true and living God. You see, to disobey God's, God's covenant that we've made with Him is not a minor and insignificant thing. As if, you know, we're just kind of testing the waters to see if any other gods will work for us. We're just trying to learn how to get by. No, disobeying God's covenant means defying God and defying the covenant that we made with Him. Listen, God wants to meet with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And He is serious about having that relationship. So serious that He has paid for a meeting with you with the blood of His own Son. And He has sprinkled you with that blood of Jesus, which is a demonstration that you belong to Him and that you have been cleansed from your guilty conscience. But God, don't, don't just think, hey, I got sprinkled with the blood. I'm all set. I can just do whatever I want. Don't think that because God has some ex- expectations for you. As the greater King, if He's going to provide provision and protection for you, He has some expectations for you. And you need to come to Him on His terms and that you must fulfill your end of the covenant that you have made with Him, which is to give to Him your life, to agree to be His bondslave. I, God, will do whatever you ask of Me. You might be thinking, well, I never signed up for that. You know, I just wanted to be rescued from hell. 
But if you think that God somehow offers get-out-of-hell-free cards, then you may very well be lost in your sins and headed for that very hell. There is a cost. Not that we earn our standing with God. It's not that at all. But here's how Jesus put it. If anyone will come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Luke 9.23 And in Matthew 10.38 He says, He who does not take his cross and follow after Me is not worthy of Me. See, God is very serious about the cost on our part, that He is, as the greater King, saying, listen, I'm going to give you all this free provision and protection. You don't have to earn it, but you need to recognize that when I buy you out of slavery and into My family, I expect you to live like a family member. I expect you to work for Me, to serve Me. And for us to say, well, no, God, I just want the provision and protection... But we don't want to do the things that You've called us to do. We have missed the point. We haven't counted the cost. So how do we do this? How do we keep this covenant? For Israel, they were initially excited about the covenant. They said, all that we, that You have said, we will do. Chapter 19, verse 7. Chapter 24, verse 3. Chapter 24, verse 7. But do you know that it would only be a matter of 40 days before they would violate it badly with the golden calf. And then successive generations would violate it in worse ways. As we read through the account of the kings in, in First and Second Kings, some of the kings were serious about the commitment that they made to God, that Moses had made to God. And so they worked hard to read and reread the covenant and, and, and apply it to the people. But others just ignored it completely. Most kings, I would say, led the people to, to just ignore God's covenant and say, you know what, we'll find our own way. So how do we keep the covenant? We don't have the Mosaic covenant, by the way. We're not, we're not bound to the Mosaic covenant. Jesus has, has fulfilled that covenant completely. Okay, but we do have a covenant with God to obey Him and to follow Him. So how do we keep this covenant? How do we make sure that, that we individually and corporately keep this covenant. And I would suggest to you that that one of the most helpful ways is to do what Moses did, and that is to write it down. What is it that God has told us to do? I'm thankful that at our church, in a corporate corporate way, we have a covenant. And that, that we had a group of 11 people who decided to establish a covenant and write it down. And they were effectively, if you think about it, agreeing to this covenant on their behalf and on our behalf. That many people were not... In fact, every single person here who's a member of this church was not a member at that time. And most of us were not born when that covenant was made. But they made that on their behalf and on our behalf that they would agree and we would agree to to live in a certain way. And so I would suggest to you that the best way to make sure that a covenant is perpetually kept for future generation is to write it down, keep it for ourselves. That is, we are going to obey it ourselves and we're going to teach it to others so that they can understand it, know it, and, and, um, and follow it. God takes covenants very 
seriously. And He expects that if He is going to provide for us, that the very least that we can do is offer our lives as living sacrifices to Him. We serve a great God. He desires to meet with us. And He has made a way for us to meet with Him. But He will not allow us to come to Him sloppily. As if it's unimportant or, 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 um, or as if we are unconcerned. He expects that we take Him seriously and that we obey His commands fully. And when we do, God fulfills His end of the covenant as well. He provides for us and protects us and give us, gives us great blessings both in this life and the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You have initiated a relationship with us. We can't imagine what life would be like apart from a relationship with You. We see people who are going through life and trying to fill it up with all of the, the dreams and, and satisfying those dreams. And, and yet they come to their, the end of their, life, their lives still unsatisfied. And in the next, they will be consumed with Your wrath. Lord, but we live for the next life. And we recognize that what this world has to offer is of little and many times no value in terms of eternity. And so we look to You for grace. And we pray that You would work in lives today. And perhaps there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, and I pray that You would work in their lives and help them to know that they can have a right relationship with You. But help them to be able to count the cost and know that it does not mean that You are simply going to give them a get-out-of-hell-free card, but, but that You will require service of them. Not as a means to pay for what, what You are giving to them, which is free, but as a means really to, to give You thanks, a peace offering, so to speak, with our lives. Lord, we pray for Your grace. And then for each of us here who do know Christ, we pray that You would help us to, to be more serious about our relationship with You and to take... Uh, meeting with you very seriously. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.